an update from Gaza on the ground. This is Youssef Hamash. You may recognize his voice from our episode last week about what it's like to live inside Gaza right now. Just to recap, the Gaza native works for the Norwegian Refugee Council and has been in Gaza since the war began. And Youssef has been sending us new voice notes every couple days to let us know how he's doing. There is always more bombardment. He says beyond the ongoing threat of near-constant Israeli airstrikes, there is another concern quickly rising to the top of the list. Fuel. Yesterday, I we ran out of water and we needed one liter of fuel to push the water up to the house tanks. Youssef says without the fuel, they couldn't get water. So he tracked down a friend who had a car with gas in it. But they didn't have anything to actually get the fuel out of the car. So we had to take this car to a mechanic so he can open the engine, find a way to get out one liter of fuel so we can use it to push the water to the house tanks. This is just a simple mission to do, to get one liter of fuel. Takes me around four hours. Four hours for one liter of fuel so his house can have access to water. And the question Youssef and so many in Gaza are asking right now, how long will we have to live like this? Fuel is what keeps the generators going. The generators are what keep the incubators, the ventilators, the desalination plants going. Today, why fuel has become a flashpoint in the Gaza Strip. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rind. The last time I talked to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, she had just visited an Israeli kibbutz that was attacked by Hamas back on October 7th. Since then, she has moved south to Cairo, Egypt, to get closer to the crisis unfolding in Gaza. We caught up again on Thursday, and I started by asking her about the situation in Gaza's hospitals. Well, we've been talking to a lot of different doctors uh, and hospital staff inside Gaza for the last week now, and it's clear that they are really hanging on by a thread at this stage. There's only been a trickle of aid that's managed to get into Gaza, and so there is a desperate need for clean water and for medical aid, particularly for the hospitals. But primarily right now, everyone is focused on fuel. Hmm. Because the electricity has been cut off in Gaza, fuel is what keeps the generators going. The generators are what keep the incubators, the ventilators, the desalination plants going. What to do for the people who are in the ICU and mechanical ventilator? What about the neonatal, neonates, the small babies? We have more than 130 in our neonatal ICU units, what to do with them? They will, okay. And the hospitals that we have spoken to at the beginning of the week were saying they had maybe a couple of days left of fuel reserves. Wow. We're now on Thursday. It's not clear how much longer they can continue to function. So it is overloaded. Our emergency department and our OT department and our IBD department are overloaded with the patients. 
Already the World Health Organization is saying that 12 of Gaza's 35 hospitals, so roughly a third of its hospitals, are not any longer able to perform their duties as hospitals. Hmm. And reportedly in eight of those hospitals, that's because of the lack of fuel. So it's definitely reaching crisis point. And what's the dispute over the fuel? Because we've heard about this back and forth between Israel and the idea of letting that fuel and why, why don't they want it in there? So the Israelis say that they don't want the fuel in there because they don't believe that it will stay out of Hamas's hands. They're concerned that Hamas will steal the fuel, that they will use it for their own infrastructure, and that they will use it for military purposes. Hmm. It's interesting, though, because at one point during the last few days, the head of the IDF came out and appeared to backpedal slightly. And he said, we are going to find a mechanism to allow fuel in for civilian use and just ensure that it doesn't make its way into Hamas's hands. And then literally three hours later, another spokesperson for the IDF came out and said, this is a non-starter. We're not giving any fuel. So a lot of people have concluded or speculated that fuel is also closely involved in these hostage negotiations. Oh. And that's why you're seeing so much tension around this subject. That's why you're seeing the message change quite a bit. And I do think it's important to underscore that the White House even, National Security Spokesperson John Kirby, has come out and said that they do believe that fuel should be allowed in for civilian use. Because at this stage, in this context in Gaza, not having fuel is potentially going to cause a huge humanitarian catastrophe. And literally, we could be talking about lives lost. Right. And is there even a mechanism that exists that would allow Israel to make sure that the fuel didn't end up in Hamas's hands for purposes that, that they don't want? Like, how does that work? Well, the argument that you will get from the UN or the Egyptian Red Crescent and Palestinian Red Crescent is that the fuel is never in the hands of Hamas. It goes from one established aid organization to another. Mm. And in the past, the IDF has said that Hamas has stolen fuel. They gave one example where they said that Hamas stole fuel from the warehouses of a UN agency that's the primary UN agency working inside Gaza. We actually went to this agency, UNRWA, and asked them, have you ever had an instance where Hamas has stolen fuel from you? And they categorically denied it and said that it has not happened. Hmm. So on the one side, you have these international humanitarian organizations saying this really shouldn't be an issue because Hamas never has contact with this fuel. And then on the other side, you have the IDF saying not only has Hamas stolen fuel in the past, but also Hamas is still currently in possession of hundreds of thousands of liters of fuel. And so if you want that fuel, go ask Hamas for it. Hmm. And in the middle of all this, of course, are just civilians trying to live their lives or hospitals trying to save people who are injured. And that's one of the real cliches of war, but it's one of the great truisms of war. It's always ordinary people who become the victims of these situations. And when you see the weaponization of fuel, of aid by both sides, then naturally you have 
The fallout is that ordinary people don't have access to the most basic level of water, food, electricity. I'll have more with Clarissa after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Back now to Tug of War and my conversation with CNN's Clarissa Ward. As we see more preparations for a ground operation into Gaza, we've heard about the risk that Israel could lose the so-called you know, moral high ground in the rest of the world, especially considering all the scenes at the hospitals that you just described. Do we get a sense that that idea is something that the Israeli government is thinking about as it gets ready for this? I think publicly the Israeli government is not engaging with that narrative at all. They have a very different public narrative. But privately, I do think they understand that they are facing more pressure, certainly from the White House, that they are facing more pressure from other international allies, the EU, and that they do recognize that as this story goes on, as a lot more of the coverage becomes focused on the hell that people in Gaza are now living through, that changes the equation for them a little bit in terms of public opinion and becomes difficult to sustain. However, whether that is a factor in their thinking or their decision-making with regards to pursuing a ground invasion, I don't know that anyone has the answer to that. And certainly, if we are to listen to the rhetoric coming from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, coming from his Minister of Defense, it does not appear to be uh, an influencing factor. Right. And what we're actually seeing, like we saw a recent uh, limited engagement near the border there. Exactly. What does it actually look like at this Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza? Because you went there, right, within the last week? We were there on Friday. There are hundreds of trucks lined up along the border, full of aid, ready to go. There are volunteer groups that are waiting as well. And a lot of frustration. I can't contact you with can't my family your, there. Your family's on the other side. Yeah, I have seven sisters and my father, my mother, grandmother, uncles. All my family is there. I can't contact with them. I don't know. Are they okay? Not just with the situation inside Gaza, but also with international organizations. So this is rapidly becoming a very chaotic scene now. And 
And also, as we found out, when a thousand plus Palestinian babies die, you don't feel the same. You don't feel the same as when I tell you one of your own has died. But these are our own. And it is unfair. And Egypt will. A lot of frustration with Western media, hmm. who in this region, many people see as prioritizing Israeli voices over Palestinian voices, as dehumanizing Palestinians uh, in our coverage. All Western channels are talking for Israel. If the United Nations is standing for Israel, if all these international institutions are standing for Israel, who's there for the Palestinians? And don't call it a war. The jargon is even more infuriating. It's not a war. They're not on equal footing. It is not a war. And that's something that you hear and see a lot of when you spend time in the Arab and Muslim world right now. What do you say, like when that protester that we heard kind of got in your face about that? I think that a big part of my job, honestly, is to listen to what people have to say and to allow them a platform to have their voices heard. These are legitimate voices. These are not, in this case, this woman is not calling for violence. She was calling for fairness and coverage, and she's angry and doesn't feel that that fairness has been given to one side of this story. Hmm. Whether that's right or wrong is a topic for a separate debate, but my job as a journalist is not to adjudicate over that debate. It's to hear people and hold that space for them. Whether the attack is on me or not is sort of irrelevant. I think in many ways, I'm just a symbol in this instance for a much broader and deeper issue that we do hear time and time again in this part of the world. Clarissa, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, David. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Anna Sterla and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Our technical director is Dan DeZula. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks to Brent Swales and Caroline Patterson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another update. Talk to you then. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.